Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation. Growing Up Iruni interview with Shiva Gofrani, aka Big Love Fierce Juju. Salam Behamegi. My name is Leila Shams, host of the Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation podcast. Today's episode is a growing up Iruni interview with Shiva Gofrani, an OBGYN better known as Big Love Fierce Juju on Instagram, where she posts daily videos about topics like pregnancy, female hormones, STDs, really all that good stuff that doesn't often get talked about openly. She's recently the co creator of Tribe Called V, an online program about pregnancy and childbirth that we talk more about later in the program. Shiva's family moved to the United States before the revolution and worked as doctors in Massachusetts. Despite this, her path to becoming a doctor wasn't necessarily a straightforward one. Compared to her sister, she describes herself as the wayward daughter who took a while to figure out her path, and her work now really marries her interest in engagement, community, creativity, and the practice of medicine. It's a fascinating path, and let's listen to her describe her journey in her own words. Enjoy! So, Shiva Gofrani, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I love connecting with Persian people anywhere and everywhere. <laughs> me too, and I was telling you before this uh, recording that I found you a couple years ago. You did a video about Nowruz, and that somehow got on my radar, and I started watching your, your stuff, and... And I really enjoyed uh, watching the things that you talk about um, so openly on your channel. So you have an Instagram, a very prolific Instagram, where you talk about women's issues. You talk about a lot of things we don't talk about often um, out loud. And I guess this is me outing myself on the podcast, but I this is my third pregnancy now. I'm about to have a baby in September, so... By the time this comes out, everyone, we slowly started telling people, so. <laughs> good, 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 good. Well, yes. and I do think it's really funny since you and I are from, you know, the same culture that we're not used to being very out about things. Exactly, which I definitely want to get into later for sure. That's that's what, like, the more I thought about this conversation, I was like, how did you get to where you are? I mean, with mental health issues and like physical issues, like we do not talk about this stuff. No, we don't. So, <laughs> so yeah, we will get into that. And you have a project right now called Tribe Called V, which I'm going to be a part of. I'm super excited about, um, and it helps you go through your pregnancy journey. And again, we'll bring all of that up. But let's go back to the very beginning. Tell me about where you were born and about your upbringing. So I was born in Connecticut. My parents actually both came from Iran, and they mm -hmm. went to medical school together in Shiraz. And they were at Shiraz University for medical school. They met. I have an amazing picture of them literally working on a cadaver in the early 60s. Wow. prior to using gloves and everything. And then once they got married, they came to America for residency. Initially, this is pre-revolution. This is pre-revolution. And it was a pretty, it was a pretty bold move, especially for my mother, because, you know, at the time, this was the early 60s. So she was a young woman from a very um, educated but traditional family. And she forged her way. She went to medical school and she left Iran. They were initially assuming that they probably would go back at some point, I think like many immigrants. And then once they created their life here, it was Hard to go back for so many different reasons, like the revolution notwithstanding. Um, and so they came for residency to New Haven. And it was really wow. just because, like all the immigrant stories, one of my uncles happened to be working in Greenwich. I think he was working for GE at the time. 
she applied to a million residencies. My mother got accepted first. She came alone without my father. He had to serve his army duty for a year. And then he followed suit. She was a pediatric resident and he was a general surgery resident. And then they had my sister and I. So she was born in 1968. And then I was born in 1970 in New Haven. And at the time, New Haven had a lot of immigrants because of Yale University. You know, we were surrounded by doctor friends who were Indian, Sri Lankan, you know, all kinds of ethnicities. But our social lives and our upbringing, much like yours probably, were not filled with Persians other than the family friends who were dispersed all throughout Connecticut. So we had kind of a motley group of family friends that we would see every several weeks. But my daily life was the American Persian girl who was, you know, a little bit darker than everybody else, didn't have a religion, didn't, you know, didn't eat exactly the same foods. So I think, you know, like a very classic first generation immigrant life, right? Interesting. Although a little bit different. I mean, I think that a lot of people came here like, you know, during the revolution out of necessity, it sounds like your parents chose to come. Chose, absolutely. they were in a really good position at the time. You know, they were doctors and. Yeah. And I think that actually really informed a lot of with our upbringing because they were both um, not only very educated, obviously, but very liberal. They did not come from families who had so much money or anything like a lot of the Iranians had. And so when they came here, they were, they really felt almost socialist right? They were not at all religious. And so while, you know, if someone asked, they would have said they were Muslim. They really didn't identify with that at all. In fact, you know, we joke that my dad is like a fervent atheist, like a very, you know, a religious right. atheist. Um, and so they raised us to really be very open and very liberal, you know, socially, politically in every way. And that was not so common in the Persian community in, in America either. Right. So then what was your interaction with Iranian culture? It was very piecemeal, meaning I felt we both, I think my sister and I both agree that we felt very deeply Persian in so many ways, but also incredibly American because we, again, we're lucky every, I'd say three to six weeks, there would be a Persian party. Uh-huh. Mehmuni. Mehmuni throughout Connecticut. <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know, the Persian parties are a long affair. So it is an all day affair. You would go to a family friend's house. Mm -hmm. The family friends would have kids of all different ages, but all from different towns. None of them lived in our town. Mm -hmm. You would have to dress appropriately. You would have to kind of kiss every single person. Hello. You'd have to interact with everyone. You know, looking back, I always say, while we we didn't have any religion, we didn't go to church or synagogue or mosque, this was almost our form of of religion in that it helped teach us some of the things that I think people learn from that weekly gathering in a church, for example. Um, Meaning, you know, I think that we kind of, as family friends, we all discussed values and ethics. We learned at a young age that even if you don't want to go to the party, you have to show up, you have to be respectful. You have to learn how to interact with different adults and different children from other parts of the state, for example. You have to make sure that you're presentable in the way that your parents want you to be, even if you don't exactly want to be. And there's good and bad in that, right? Right. So I think we felt very Persian, although I still make fun of my mom and, you know, she'll say, she'll say something about like Sizabadad or, you know, any of the holidays. And, and I kind of look back and think, mom, we didn't discuss all of those holidays. Of course, we talked about Noruz. We always had a half scene. And again, for anyone listening who doesn't know, we set a beautiful table that's very symbolic and really like the most beautiful holiday, I think, because there's nothing to do with religion. But we didn't really, um, from the cultural aspect, we ate Persian food. They spoke Farsi to us, kind of. I say I speak Farsi like a second grader. We knew about Iran. We would see all of our Persian relatives who are not only throughout this country, but throughout the world. 
And I went to Iran twice in 1975 and 1977. But otherwise, we didn't we didn't actually have the the typical Iranian American upbringing because again, my parents were very very liberal. I mean, they're the oldest now of all of their Persian friends in our area, and I think certainly kind of the the most politically and socially liberal in many ways, despite being older. Um, and so that was unique. So they were pretty young when they came. They were in their 20s when they came. And my mother wow. was 32 when she had me, which at the time was considered older, of course. <laughs> but they also didn't, you know, for better or for worse, they didn't have the benefit of having a big group of Persians immediately in our town. Mm-hmm. So while now there are some Farsi schools in the New Haven area, there was none of that at the time. Right. So, you know, on one hand, it was nice because my parents were really able to forge their way on their own terms without the interaction. As we know, it's so wonderful to have family and friends here mm-hmm. surrounding you to kind of help you with growing your life. But that also is is a double-edged sword because that means, right. you know, I, I always also say to my mom, because we're very close, my parents live 50 feet away. <laughs> Nice. Yes. And so I, and she always says, you're so lucky to have us. And I'm so lucky to have them. It is so wonderful for me and for my children. That said, it really is, you know, everything I do is kind of under the microscope. Oh, (laughs) are you going to do this? Are you going to do that? Whereas my parents got to really forge a life in America on their own terms without anyone commenting on what car they were buying, what home they were buying, you know, how they were raising their children. And so I think they were, they really had one of the most unique Persian American experience. So interesting. So then you said they kind of spoke Persian to you. So what was their, were they fluent in English when they came? And well, and I think like, you know, like most Persians, they learn English very well. So they learned English there. They both still to this day, and you know, they were born in 1937 and 39, but they still speak with, you know, their lahja, they speak with accents, Uh but their English is very good. They speak very, you know, well-educated English. And so they started to speak to us in Farsi when we were younger. I think it was hard again because as little American kids, we just would speak back in English mm-hmm. and they didn't have, again, a lot of peers that were immediately around them. You know, mm-hmm. again, in that three to six week cycle, we would see our Persian friends, but otherwise we were surrounded by Americans and they were they were in their private practices as physicians. Um, and my grandmother would come periodically from Iran and spend uh-huh. a couple, couple of months with us. And we would pray namaz, even though she was religious because she came from Iran, but was such an open-minded soul. Right. 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 Um, and so I say, I can, I can fool people and speak just enough Farsi that they think I speak more, but then once they speak too much, I don't know enough vocabulary to really have like a deeper conversation. Did they speak Farsi to one another still? Yeah. Oh yeah. They always spoke Farsi to one another, but I still, if I look back on like some of my regrets, it would be that I wish I'd spent more time learning Farsi. And so when you were in school, like, how did you feel about your culture? Were you embarrassed about it or were you open about it? Or what was your uh, relationship with the Persian culture? I, you know, and I would love one time for you and my sister and I to all talk about this because <laughs> okay. so she's two years older and she has right. a really interesting, you know, we talk about this pretty frequently that we have very different views of it. I mean, we're both very proud to be Persian, um, but I think maybe because of my birth order, maybe just because I think that pragmatically when I was young, I realized that while we're completely American and we were so lucky, we had great friends and everything, we are clearly a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. Like my parents both worked at a time where a lot of mothers didn't work in our town. You know, we weren't Jewish or Christian. Everyone always would ask like, oh, you must be Jewish. No. Okay. Then you must be Christian. No Mm -hmm. one realized there was like another religion or no religion. Right. And I was always the one saying, well, my grandparents were Muslim, but I don't have any religion. And so I think that I decided pragmatically somehow deep, like at a young age that I was just going to embrace the fact that I was different and I was going to celebrate it. And I just decided okay. that like being different was just going to be cool enough for me. And, uh-huh. and I'm glad I did because it was, it, it worked out. 
So I was never embarrassed and I was always proud of it. And I actually really love having a name that kind of piques interest and curiosity as to where I'm from and what it means. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, there's all these funny little stories. Like I remember the time when my, you know, a bunch of my friends were over and they opened the freezer door and there's the huge heads of the calves because they were going to, my mother was going to make calipache, uh-huh, which for right. was like a head of a cat, like frozen calves of heads. Right. So, you know, there's always those funny things where you didn't exactly know how to explain it to your family, to your friends, or, right. you know, it's always hard to really get Americans to understand that you go visit family somewhere and you don't stay in a hotel, you stay with the family right. or you have a party and the party's all day long or, right. you know, our house always smelled like Hormis Abzi and things like that. But, yes. um, but yeah, no, I felt, I, I feel really lucky that I don't think I ever felt persecution, even though we were, you know, I was young at the time of the Iran hostage crisis, right. but I didn't ever, maybe I just was immune to it. Maybe people said things and I just didn't want to listen to them, but I didn't right. feel like I was. I ever was the butt of jokes or anything like that. Okay. Yeah. I always say that. I mean, I'm in Texas and I grew up in Texas. I, I was born in Iran, but came when I was four. And I always say that, like, I feel like even in Texas, like people were pretty open-minded and I was yeah. always very proud of my heritage. And, and I, yeah. I feel like people were very kind about it. So yeah, I don't know. yeah. there's those experiences also. And I think it's good to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> I do think it's good. horrible. Yeah. I mean, here's the truth. I think that while you and I were lucky, we experienced that. I think, honestly speaking, we also look still fairly American, right? That's we're both true too, fair. Right? We're not um, asserting ourselves as foreigners in that right. way. Like um, as far as how we look, yes, we might look a little different. Like I grew up with a lot of blonde people, so I might look a little different. I'm not naturally right. blonde like this, <laughs> but, and so, you know, I grapple with that too, that I That's think true. on one hand, I feel grateful that no one was ever you know, no one ever kind of said anything terrible to me about anything. But I also right. think, you know, we, we know that there's still a lot of anti-Middle Eastern sentiment that people get, especially when they Definitely. really look like they're from the Middle East. Yeah. Definitely. That's a great point. Um, yeah. But I was reading, so you then uh, studied liberal arts in college, but then you kind of became every Iranian parent's dream. And then you did end up going to med school. <laughs> so yeah, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, it sounds like your parents were very open and it seems like they'd be very supportive no matter what, but yes. what was your journey uh, to med school? Well, <laughs> well, and you know, there's so many layers again, for anyone who doesn't know Persian families, everyone is supposed to be like a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, right? Yes, and so right. I'm a doctor and my sister happens to be not only a lawyer, but a judge in charge of, oh my all, of criminal, all of the court of Miami. So we jokingly say like, we're the Persian parents dream, but I was really, and I say this not self-deprecatingly just to like be tongue in cheek. The truth is as the younger sibling, I was definitely the wayward one. Now wayward in an, in an Iranian family who is educated doesn't mean I was like off doing drugs and things like that. But my sister was always very direct. She knew what she wanted to do. She absolutely wanted to be a lawyer. She studied hard on her own. She didn't need anyone to tell her that I was, as you might guess, like I wanted to talk, I wanted to have fun. (laughs) I didn't know what I wanted to do. My parents were constantly kind of having to like threaten me with, you have to work harder or, and they did it in a way that I really try to emulate in my parenting because they were very clear that my sister and I had to grow up, be independent, you know, have some kind of career that we could support ourselves, period, because my parents were not going to support us forever. So they Mm -hmm. wanted us to be independent. And the underlying layer was, it would be nice if it was something that, you know, you could feel proud of forever. They didn't say, they never said actually be a doctor because they were doctors and they knew that if you don't want to be a doctor and you do it for someone else's, you know, desires, it's the worst field ever. So they were very open about not pushing us towards it. And I actually early on decided, I think being a doctor is too much work. It's gross. I don't like it. I mean, all these things. And so when I got to 
college, I really had no idea. I loved jewelry. I would loved artistic endeavors, but I didn't actually think I had the talent to be able to be successful. So I literally switched majors four times as an undergrad at Georgetown. And for an, again, an Iranian American family whose first daughter was like type A, got into law school right away. (laughs) Now they have this girl who switched majors four times. It was all liberal arts. It was first French, then Italian, then um, English, and then American government. I had no no. idea what I wanted to do. (laughs) No idea. And my friends from Georgetown still laugh because somewhere mid through senior year, I think I said, I don't know what I want to do. I think I'll apply to medical school. Maybe I'll take my pre-meds. I mean, that's literally how it happened. It was not this. And I say this very openly to any parent out there who's worried that their child doesn't know what they want to do. I think if you raise your children, and I always say this to be independent and resilient, then things will evolve, right? I don't think most of us genuinely know what we want to do when we're young. Even those those people who chose careers and happened to stick with them, the fact is many people did it for other reasons that weren't necessarily always valid. So my parents made it clear, like, these are your goals. You have to be independent. And I thought, you know what? I'll start my pre-meds and I'll see. But I stuck with it. And again, I can't say that I went into medicine because of this, like, oh my gosh, I want to heal people and everything. I went into medicine really because I did not know what else to do. And I knew that I could enjoy it. And it turned out to be an amazing decision, not because I think it's the only thing I could have been happy at. I think that many of us could be happy doing many different things, Right. but I feel really grateful that it's a career that I've loved where I still can listen. Like it's a built-in, I feel good about myself every day because I'm helping people and I'm able to support my family. And I really, truly love it because I like to engage with people. And so this is the medium with which I engage happens to be medicine. Um, And isn't that nice that like it happened to also please my parents, which (laughs) Salam Bahamigi, Layla here with a quick break to let you know about our Learn Persian with Chai and Conversation program. Our goal at Chai and Conversation is to teach you about Iranian culture and about the Persian language. Check out our other podcast episodes for fun, free, bite-sized Persian language lessons, and log on to our website to join our newsletter, where we email you fun weekly reminders that will inspire, motivate, and entertain you on your Persian learning journey. That's on our website at chaiandconversation.com with chai spelled C-H-A-I. Now, back to the interview. Having followed your work for the past couple of years, it seems like you managed to take all those interests that you had, you know, jewelry. I mean, (laughs) you you can see that you have all this beautiful jewelry on and then talking to people, engaging with people. So like you said, it's like a medium to be able to really express yourself creatively. That's really really interesting. Well, and that's why I think that for young people, I really hope that they, they learn not to do things because their family or their, or pressure from society, right. Learn and, and, and not feel the pressure to have to pick one thing that they think they love. I've always said, I wish that we could say to young people, let's take some kind of um, test where we understand like what part of your personality is that part that you want to hone. And then here are 30 different careers that might match that. Right. Right. Like had I known early on that what I love is engaging with people then maybe I would have done something differently. I'm not sad at all that this is what I picked, but I think it would have opened the doors more a little bit to different choices. But it's also nice to see different types of like being a doctor is not just one thing. You don't have to look like this if you're a doctor. You don't have to act like this if you're a doctor. You could be a doctor who is like you. So it's really nice to have that uh, that example. So I really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, I laugh that you say that because again, my parents who live next door, (laughs) who I'm incredibly close to and love them. And they, like I said, very liberal, very open-minded. My dad actually back in the seventies and eighties, I mean, he really cared about how he dressed and like was very meticulous as a physician and got a little bit of, um, you know, celebration and yet 
black because he would be the one to kind of dress with a little bit more flair. Right. To this day, I mean, we laugh every day. He'll say, Shiva, I mean, this is too much jewelry. This is not, <laughs> this is not professional. This is not what doctors do. And I was just like, dad, it's okay. I don't even take new patients. I don't think anyone's leaving me because of my jewelry. And if they are, that's okay. <laughs> so it's funny that you say that because we yeah. do, you know, it's like, it's a subject of discussion a lot. Well, so now let's talk about um, the types of things that you talk about. So you're very open about uh talking about things that are usually taboo, even in American culture to talk about, I mean, from things like, you know, women's sexuality to even miscarriages or, you know, postpartum depression or things that come up that a lot of us don't like a lot of us go through, but we don't talk about necessarily. So how did you, what led you to that on your journey? Well, just like you said, I, so I myself have been through a lot because I had, you know, I always joke, it sounds like a laundry list and I don't mean it to sound kind of like, dismissive, but I had six miscarriages. I had a lot of trouble with my three babies. My deliveries were two out of three were pretty challenging. One was the surprise. My most recent child who's 11 years old, she was a divine surprise. Um, so I had a lot of interesting things. I had ovarian cancer. I had endometriosis. So having been through all that, it really helped inform me. I mean, I think that I always enjoyed, like I said, engaging with, with women anyway, but this certainly helped me feel like I had more credibility because I could genuinely understand what it felt like when a woman had a miscarriage, when she was told, you know, that yolk sac is too small, for example, or mm-hmm. there's no heartbeat, or when she's told that the vaginal delivery is, is going to be a challenge, all those things. I've also literally dealt with weight issues my entire life. I mean, mm-hmm. that is one thing that I would say the Persian culture is not kind and not, yeah. um, not, it, it is a challenging culture when it comes to weight, right? Because right. they want us to eat a lot, but if we eat too much, that's not good either, right? right. They want us to not be too skinny but at the same time, we shouldn't be heavy. And so that really leads to, I think, a lot of confusion for many of us. So I've, I think that in, has really informed me as well, because I can understand, you know, I always say when it comes to pregnancy, weight and cancer, those are three things that women in general will have to grapple with at some point in their life. Like every single woman mm-hmm. will have to deal with one of those three issues and not all three of them. Add okay. sexuality into it and just like changes with libido. I mean, there's so much. And I feel like, oh, I've kind of cornered the market on that as, you know, <laughs> the patient and the doctor. I think that the confusing part for many people, including my own family, like my mother, is that my sister and I feel just incredibly open about this stuff. And I don't know where that came from, to be honest, because my mom is, a, again, a very, she's, she's the four foot 10 petite powerhouse of a pediatrician who all the family friends, all the family members on both sides of my family throughout the world call my mother for advice, right? She's the tiny, mighty, she's the one that they go to for everything. But she's still very Persian, you know, Persians like to keep it a little bit close to the vest. There's a lot of chajalat. You don't necessarily want to be open with everyone about all of the the good or bad things, right? Right. And so she still kind of jokes, like she'll tell us something and she'll say, I don't think you should put it on Facebook yet. And we're (laughs) like, I'm not going to put that on Facebook. You know, but I always joke, like I would put a lot more on Facebook if I could, not because I care that everyone knows about me, but I care that me being able to be open, I've seen how much it can help other people. And I know that not only selflessly does it help other people, but the magic, and I wish more women realized or accepted this is when I can talk about my miscarriages or my weight or my cancer or, you know, my annoyance at my husband or any of these things, not only can it help someone else, which let's face it, makes us feel good, but it helps me heal. It helps me know that if there was a purpose that is going to further the the reasons for me to have gone through this because right. I always say I don't think things happen for a reason but I need to find reason once it's happened and right. so I feel like it's just easier to be open you know I always say right. if I kind of joke that I have a big butt 
then there's no more, then there's no, like, no one's going to turn around and be like, do you know, she has a big butt because right. I've already said it. So like, it's just easier, right. um, but, but it's very unpersian, right? Right. Yeah. So how does your, does your mom understand what, like, does she watch your videos? <laughs> yes. Oh, she does watch my videos, okay. although I always, you know, and I'm sure she'll listen to this because she's actually <laughs> a very avid podcast listener, but she, you know, she'll kind of say things like, I mean, and, and again, she's so supportive and very praiseworthy of it. Right. And I think a little bit confused by all of it, right? My parents, like I keep saying, incredibly wonderful, liberal, educated people, but they're still traditional. And right. so they were still raised as Persians who work in a field and then retire. You know, all of a sudden they have their daughter who's worked in this field. I've been 23 years into it. I have zero desire to ever retire, but that's exactly why I've morphed my life so that I can continue to work forever but work differently than being only a full-time private practice physician. And that's confusing for my parents. And all of a sudden, you know, hearing, hearing their daughter, like bleach her hair blonde and wear all this jewelry and talk about everything in the world is, you know, they're, they're fine with it, but they're confused by it. And I think, (laughs) you know, and I always say they're, they're, they really have been um, good examples. I think for many people in the Persian community to, to kind of try to see that you can be very Persian and still be open. Right. That's wonderful. So yeah. now let's, uh, let's move forward to, uh, talking about your current family. So tell yeah. me about your husband. Uh, what is he Iranian or what culture is he? And yeah. you know, what's, what's going on there? And when well, did you and guys we, meet? So we met in met right when I was in medical school, my third year of medical school. So it was 1998. I was 20 years old. He's a doctor old. as well. No, he oh, is yeah. actually, so I went, so I did my pre-meds after college in New York city. And then I applied to medical school. And so in 1995, I started medical school, but the best school that I got into, because the American schools on American soil were very hard to get into. The best school I got into was in Tel Aviv. There's an American medical school in Tel Aviv that you have to be an American citizen to go there. And I applied and I got in and I knew someone who had been there before. Ironically, one of the only other Persian non-Jews Jews was there. So yes. I was in my third year of medical school in Tel Aviv and it's a funny story, but I was walking my dog who was an Israeli mutt that I had gotten in Israel. Um, so I'm in my little dog park and I see this, you know, cute guy. He's in this small dog dog park. He and I are the only ones in there. He starts speaking to me in Hebrew and I answered him in English that I don't speak Hebrew and I'm an American medical student. And I knew enough to know what he was saying. Um, and long story short, we started talking and dating. And six months later we got engaged, which was very bizarre, as you know, for a Persian family. But my parents, I think also, they were very realistic. They, I don't think they had any um, inclination to think that when they raised my sister and I in America, essentially as Americans with a Persian flair, I don't think they thought we were going to marry Persians. And I really applaud them for that because I do see a lot of immigrant families who move their families to America. They raise their children with all the glory of America and then somehow seem upset or offended that their children are not sticking with, you know, only marrying someone within the culture, but you you know, there's ways to keep the flavor of the culture. And I do think it, it is nice to marry someone within your culture, just so that they understand, you know, your language, your food and things like that. But I got the next best thing in many ways, because (laughs) the Arab culture, as we all know, is very similar. I mean, in many ways, my husband understands my parents and their culture more than I do, because, you know, he was really raised in the Arab or Israeli culture. So your husband speaks Hebrew, English, is that it? Arabic. Yeah. Arabic. Arabic. 
Okay. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then, and then, and then a little bit of, you know, he can like kind of understand a little bit of French and a little bit of German, but his right. three main languages that he speaks very fluently and reads and wow. writes are Arabic, Hebrew and, and, um, and English. Yeah. Okay. So then you have three kids. How old are they? And there are two boys and one girl, right? Two boys and one girl. Okay. So, so the kids, what do they speak right now? Or how, what do they identify as? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it's funny, you know, I realized that with our kids, um, I think that most of us as parents, we assume a lot. We assume that kids absorb everything, which they do absorb um, in a deep, latent way, but they don't necessarily, I don't think things are as concrete as we think they are. Right. And I say that meaning like, again, with my mom, when we talk about certain aspects of Noruz, in my mind, Noruz was like a really fun celebration of New Year's, you know? And now I come to find that my mom is like, no, in Noruz, we're supposed to call every single uncle and aunt and all these things that I, that I, I didn't know that because you never told me that. So right. I actually try to be very, very, um, clearly demonstrated with my kids. Like, I think it's necessary, but not sufficient to behave in a certain way, but I mm -hmm. think you need to behave in a certain way so that they emulate things. But I think you need to be pretty concrete and clear with them. So I will say to them, kids, if anyone asks you, your mother is an Iranian American whose grandparents were Muslim, but she is not religious at all because it's confusing, right? Cause yeah. I think sometimes, you know, I think sometimes people want to know like, Oh, your name is Shiva why is it Shiva? And if I was like, I don't know, because my parents named me Shiva, I'm not explaining what I, what I know they need. Right. right. Um, or if they ask what religion and I say nothing, then they don't really understand the historical context. And I think that's what people like to know. Right. You know, and I explained to them, like, your father is an Arab Israeli Catholic and you were baptized. And I said to them, you can feel free as you get older to decide whether or not you want to say you're Catholic or not, right. because they don't really practice Catholicism, but they were baptized Catholic. Um, and so I think they're not confused because they don't realize there's any confusion. And I think nowadays in America, it is even more of a melting pot than before. Right. But I think they identify with things like they love Arabic food. They love Persian food, but they also really love Italian food. Right. <laughs> <You> now <laughs> they, they took Farsi class. I mean, I, okay. I can't, now I look back, I can't believe it. But when the boys were little every Friday, I would drive to Westchester, which was 45 minutes from here yeah. for a really serious Farsi class. Like, Wow reading and writing. And honestly, it was too much. Like it was, it right. wasn't enough language. It was more reading and writing and it was just hard for everybody. And then, um, another woman who lives in our area, the other Shiva, who I uh -huh. refer to a lot, she's taught Farsi with another friend of ours to the kids for a while. So they understand a couple of little words, but not enough. It's hard. You know, it's hard enough yeah. having been raised by two Iranian parents in America and my Farsi is not great. And now my <laughs> kids have two different parents. So again, if I had to reflect on like, what do I wish I had spent a little bit more time on? I wish I did. And yet life just with the way I work and everything has made it hard. Yeah. Right. Well, so what is your interaction with the running culture with your family? Like you guys do no ruse or what do you, yeah. you eat the yes. food? We eat the food. I mean, my, my mother lives next door. Right. So <laughs> we eat a lot of Persian food. And I always laugh. Like I think of the time where they were walking up from the bus stop once. And one of the kids was like, like sniffing. And he's like, <laughs> grandma must be making korma sabzi. And we must have been, I mean, honestly, we were like five houses away. I believe right. it. You can smell right? that five houses away for sure. Yeah. So we do. I mean, listen, I, I fully will say with a little bit of kajalat that they don't know enough or a lot about Iran and the Persian culture, but I'm hopeful that as they get older, they're going to on their own kind of try to learn about it. But right. they, you know, they're used to seeing all of my, all of our family friends, many of whom still live in Connecticut are at my parents' house. Now, now right. those all day parties, now they're poker bazi parties. So they play, <laughs> the men play poker all day. Yeah. And it's actually great because my kids can still experience, you know, going over to grandma's house, 
nice. these parties start at like 12 p.m. during the day and end at like, you know, 10 p.m. at night. But the kids can get, kind of just bop it back and forth because my parents are next door. So they still get to see enough. I mean, again, listen, I think it's like anything, it dilutes. Each generation dilutes a little bit. Right, right. But it's still there. It's still there oh, yeah. getting some through osmosis. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, so now tell me about, we see your poster that their tribe called V. Tell me yeah. about your project. It just came yeah. online a couple of weeks ago. Was that right? Well, the biggest part came online. So about two and a half years ago, right, right before the pandemic, I was working full, full time OBGYN private practice with my partner. So I've loved, we've been together for 23 years. Um, and I'd always thought that I would do something different as I got older, meaning I would still work as a physician always, but working in a very busy private practice is grueling, as you know, right. and doing that as a mom. And I'm, I was at the time almost four years after my chemo. Now I've been six years after my chemo. So I knew I would do something different, but I didn't know what. And I was approached by this woman at a talk that I gave and she said, I'm going to get pregnant and I want to create a platform where we can talk more about pregnancy. And that's now my business partner, Jenny Hayes Edwards. And so since then we've grown Tribe Called V, which is our online platform, which isn't just focused on pregnancy, but our initial offerings have been pregnancy focused because she was 45 at the time and got pregnant with her frozen eggs from when she was 35. So now she has a one-year-old. Yeah. So she's 46. Now she has a Uh one-year-old. And so during her pregnancy, we actually really filmed an entire pregnancy week by week. Wow. And so made it kind of podcast style where now it's a standalone pregnancy course that's self-paced. But while we were working on it and editing it, we started an online two times a month. We do live Zooms for any of the members who are women throughout the country and some in other countries like Canada and places like that who join our, our membership. Um, nice. And we talk about different pregnancy topics and then we do Q and A and it's really been great. And I feel proud of it because it's not just great for the women because they've learned so much about pregnancy that they don't get to learn certainly on Google. They get misinformation right. on Google and even their doctors, many of them really love their doctors, but even the, I always say, even the chattiest of doctors like me, we just don't have enough time to talk about everything. So these right. women, love their doctors. And so what makes me actually most proud, I think, is that I think they have a better relationship with their doctors because now they get to learn things from a doctor who's practicing. I think all too often, there are a lot of doctors who are doing a lot of work, but they're no longer practicing. So their view is a little different or from practitioners who don't have anything to do with medicine, but they're talking about pregnancy and things like that. So I think ours is really unique because it was the practicing OB and the woman who was pregnant collaborating to create this course. And now the course itself just launched as a self-paced video program. Nice. And then we have the VIP add-on where you can join our live Zooms. And now I'm going to start really working on the gynecology aspect because, you know, I really say frequently, me picking the OB is not because I think OB is more important. I think pregnancy is incredibly important, but I think your life as a woman in the gynecological field or any human with ovaries is more right. important because you spend more time in your life as a human with ovaries, you know, or without like, I don't have ovaries anymore, but I'm still identifying as a female. And so there's a lot of things that I need to know and remember for my whole life. So now I'm going to start working on short video series about everything. Like you had said that I want to talk about everything. So HPV, herpes, perimenopause, vaginal dryness, endometriosis. I mean, all the things that it's actually shocking to me in a way that not only do we not learn about it, but that we talk about it as if it's something you know, a little bit strange or a little bit unique. I mean, these are everyday experiences. And again, most women will experience not just one, but many, if not all of these topics, right? Right, right. I have patients all the time who've had HPV, herpes, endometriosis, PCOS, miscarriage, cancer, weight issues, the whole gamut. Right. But yet they're 
lovely, wonderful, healthy, educated people who are still okay, right? but they need more information about that. So that's what we're really striving to do. I love how you said in one of your videos, you were saying that uh, as women, like when you say, you, when you mention something amongst a group of women, everyone else says, oh, I've been through that too. And that yeah. happens all the time. That's so true. Time. You just don't talk yeah. about it. Then the minute you talk about it, you realize you're not alone. That's you're not really alone. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So I'll and definitely, I think it unifies. I'll definitely be joining the program and we'll put Yay. a link to the program in Perfect. the, so if the, if the timing's right, you can all join with me yeah, that's <laughs> on right. this program. That'll be a lot yep. of fun. And it's yeah. nice. I mean, the word tribe is perfect too. You have this like online tribe to to go through this with and not feel so alone. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you said actually. Well, first of all, this, what's great about the program, I think, is people can keep people can join the program, meaning the self-paced video course, before they're even pregnant because it comes with an ebook, a little bit about how like trying to conceive and everything. And right. then once you once you've bought it, you have it for a lifetime, whether it's like one or ten pregnancies. And right. we address everything from like miscarriage to bleeding and spotting, what happens at your ultrasounds and everything. But the word tribe, you know, we were a little bit reluctant. We thought that word tribe can be so triggering, right? For some people, right. I think it can be very divisive, but we really felt like, you know, we always joke the only, um, the only thing that you need to be a member of our tribe is to care either for yourself or for someone else who is identifies with female organs or what we're going right. to call female organs. You don't even right. have to be a female identifying as a female, but you need to care about those organs and what they do to our body. That right. is the only kind of um, nomination you need to be part of the tribe. So we felt like in our situation, it's so all encompassing yeah. um, that it wasn't divisive and wasn't kind of othering. And so I'm glad that you like that. Yeah. yeah. And so where do people find you in general? What's your Instagram and do you have a website? We have our website is tribecalledv.com. And that's where all of our, a lot of free content, um, same thing on YouTube, Tribe Called V. So there's a lot of free content there. There's some of the paid content. And then my main Instagram is my own, which is at big love, fierce juju. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have our tribe called the Instagram. Okay, great. And juju is J U J U. And we'll link to that J-U-J-U. on this too. It's yes. a wonderful yes. page. I learned something Thank every you. day. <laughs> so it's a lot of <laughs> Thank fun. You. Yeah. Thanks. And it was so, so good to talk to you. And yeah. So fun. Find out about your journey to, to where you are. Yeah. It's a lot of fun yeah. to hear. Well, thank you. Because listen, as a joke, this is what I like to do most is engage. So hearing <laughs> hearing anyone be interested just makes me happy. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Shiva. Shiva okay. Okay. Bye, Leila. Bye. And that's it for our interview with Shiva Rofrani. Hope you enjoyed that. And make sure to check out our website at tryandconversation.com with try spelled C-H-A-I for much, much more. This episode was edited by Chadwick Wood. Theme music is by Babak Najabi. And I'm your host, Leila Shams. Until next time, Khuda Hafiz!